Hi everyone and welcome to the All Plane Podcast, where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv. A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E.tv. Today we are going to talk about the technology that is at the cutting edge of aerospace science, hypersonic flight. That is, broadly speaking, when you fly at more than five times the speed of sound, hypersonics have become fashionable recently, and not least because in a climate of raising geopolitical tension, some of the major powers like the US, China and Russia, for example, are in a sort of hypersonic arms race. But at the same time, a handful of startups have emerged that are looking at civilian applications for hypersonic technology. Can you imagine traveling across the Atlantic in just a couple of hours or getting from Europe to Australia and back on the same day? Well, our guest today, Mikhail Kokoric, the founder of the Stinus, is working on an aircraft that might be able to do that. His startup, based in Switzerland, is a leading player in a wave of startups that are trying to make hypersonic flight more accessible. A physicist by background, before founding the Stinus, Mikhail had a long experience as a successful entrepreneur, starting in retail but then moving on to found several aerospace and satellite technology companies. In our conversation, Mikhail doesn't shy away from talking about the formidable challenges ahead and the relatively long time that it will require for hypersonic air travel to become a regular occurrence. But he also outlines some of the factors that are boosting this current resurgence of hypersonic research. The interest of the military, of course, is one of them, but the Stinus has also raised money from private investors and public research organizations to make this vision a reality and to go beyond the domain of the military to develop also civilian applications for air travel. If him and other entrepreneurs now working on commercial hypersonic applications succeed, this will be a truly disruptive technology and one that will transform forever the way we travel by air around the world. But it's best if we hear it all directly from Mikhail. So let me welcome him to the podcast. Hello, Mikhail. How are you? Thank you. Nice meeting you. Yeah, likewise. Just let me introduce you very briefly, because you are what I would call maybe a, a serial entrepreneur. You have a, a long career starting new projects, new ventures. You were uh, successful in, in retail. Now you are in, in aerospace and you are the founder of uh, Destinos, which is a company that is basically developing something that is at the very, very edge of aerospace technology, hypersonic flight. So before we move on, I, I just would like to ask you a little bit about the background and how did you move into aerospace? Because I think your previous career was in, in retail. Uh, what brought you to aerospace and particularly this very challenging technology, which is hypersonic flight for commercial applications? It's actually my career was last more than 10 years in aerospace. So since 2010, 2011, I built several aerospace companies, launched dozens of satellites. We built several new uh, approaches how to build aerospace stuff. So I would say, as I remember, the most of my career come in, uh, in, uh, in uh, aerospace. Yeah, before this, I had some period of the uh, retail stuff, even I by background, I'm physicist, uh, but uh, at that time, I had the opportunity to build a retail company. But I'm longer in the business, basically since 19, than most of the Western people can imagine, because I started my business career at the age of 19. So by 46, now I'm 27 years in the business. 
So as you know, the Western people, the kids still 30. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I started my adult life at 90. So yeah. it means it's an most early of start. my career come in office. Mm-hmm. It's normal start. It's normal start, not for the gold billion. Yeah. So the gold billion have advantages of being a, a protected by parents and live up to 30 with the parents. We didn't have this uh, option because we, at that time, Russia, after the collapse of Soviet Union, definitely was not a golden billion. Mm-hmm. And now you have this startup called Destinus that is based in Switzerland, but it has operations in other European countries, in, in I think in Germany, in Spain. We're going to talk now about Spain because you recently, I think, got some funding from the Spanish technology development organization to build up your your presence in Spain. Tell us a little bit about your current project, Destinus. You are trying to build something that is technologically very challenging, which is a hypersonic aircraft for the civilian market. Uh, what can you tell us about the origins of this project and where are you now with this? Yeah, first, uh, we are building a European company and you see our team and our efforts spread between several countries uh, because for modern projects in aerospace, maybe except for a couple of countries, the one country is not able to do everything in the in-house. So I would say if you talk about now technological super civilization that's capable to handle projects like hypersonic, like space, it's a, it's a three, uh, this, uh, I would say the center of this, uh, uh, technological, you know, super civilization. It's United States, it's China and Europe as a entirety. No one country in Europe is capable to handle this type of the projects so, alone. Because it's a, eventually it's a all spread between the country's capabilities and the people and the skills. It's, and it's normal because this was idea behind the Europe to build the bigger place where the bold projects can be decided. So we don't see about us as a Swiss company or French company or Spanish company or German company or other. We see us as a, we're a European company. Not mm-hmm. bounded by European Union, but in a geographical yep. area, mm-hmm. logically, we're a European company. Let's first maybe take a step back because we've talked about hypersonics. And while I'm sure that many in the audience are familiar with the concept of hypersonics, I think it's good that we recap a little bit what hypersonics means. So it's basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's uh, flying at speeds that are superior to Mach five. So that's five, more than five times the speed of sound. Just to put some reference here, I think the, the fastest aircraft serially produced was the American SR-71, which I think reached around three, Mach 3.3 or something like that. So what you're trying to do is actually fly almost double, <laughs> almost double that speed, which it's, it's quite a challenge. Um, tell me a little bit more about how do you intend to do that? What's the Stinus project about? What are the main features of this aircraft you are designing? And how the project has been evolving over the last few years? Because there are no uh, clear distinction what is a hypersonic speed. It's not like supersonic. Supersonic, this is a very clear physical number. It's called speed of sound when uh, you basically uh, can put a boundary. So below it's subsonic. Above it's supersonic, in the area of the supersonic, it's a transonic. And this is just because of the character of the, of the interaction of the plane and the air and the speed of sound. Because information about any influence 
in a guess, moved only with the speed of sound. So after the, you're flying more than speed of sound, you create the shockwave. Yeah. From this perspective, there are not so many differences if you're flying with a two mark, three mark, or five mark. The, the, this like it's still supersonic speed. But, uh, something starts to happen differently when you're in an area of five, six mark. And this difference is that the thermal effects, basically the heating of the air in the shockwave start to play important role. So at this speed, uh, the temperature in a shock layer start to be hot enough. So the gas start to dissociate and it's not anymore like uh, air, like we see. It's a complex chemical compound and uh, the thermal effects start to influence on your flying vehicle. So it means you, you have a considerable heating from this uh, shock wave and from this, the interaction with the, uh, with the air. Uh, but, but this is a, not like a specific boundary. It's not that say a five mark below, uh, uh, something not happening after something happens. Uh, the hypersonic in general is this area where it started be- before, like uh, around five, six mark. But four mark, it's also almost hypersonic. It's a, it's a high hypersonic and three mark. It's actually close to hypersonic. So there are no big difference between three mark and five mark. There are some difference, but you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's already, you see some effects. Yeah. So it's not clear boundary. Say below five mark, it's just supersonic, but not hypersonic. After five mark, it's hypersonic. It's, it's area, yeah, where the thermal effect start to influence, yeah. And, uh, uh, people actually built the flying vehicles that was flying more than five mark. Uh, first it's any re-entry vehicles. So when you're flying to space, when you re-enter, you fly with a 50 mark, with a much higher speed. So people know how to do this. It was done many times with, uh, with the re-entry capsules. It was done many times with a wing plane, like space shuttle or the Soviet Buran. So people know how to do it. And it was also some tests, uh, with the flying vehicles, uh, on the ground, like X-15. Yeah. Uh, this was a rocket plane in the sixties, studied by us intensively. And, uh, they tested like a five Mach plus. Yeah. So they actually flew five Mach. Yeah. I think that's still the, that's still the record. Yeah. For the manned plane. Yes. I think man plane. one manned plane, yeah. one unmanned, unmanned like hypersonic vehicle, probably the fastest is Russian cruise missiles, you know, the hypersonic missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the plane vehicle, it was the fastest, yeah, that ever was yeah. reached. And, uh, for the planes, more or less a takeoff from the ground, from the land, uh, because this was dropped from, uh, from the plane, yeah, X-15. Uh, uh, the fastest was, uh, yes, uh, SR-71 and almost the same speed was also MiG-25, uh, the Soviet MiG-25 that also 3.3, 3.2 like, uh, Mach. So it's uh, basically the same speed level. Yeah. And, uh, we come to idea to uh, build hypersonic plane and um, it's interesting enough. It's not only we are as a company building it. Yeah. So it's actually at the same time, several companies, several groups of people decided to build it. So in Europe, so far, we are the only uh, company who is doing this, but uh, uh, there are in US two players, Hermes Hypersonics, which heavily funded by United States Department of Defense. And another investor, it's a Sam Alton, who was founder of uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT. Everybody knows ChatGPT. He is one of the yeah. big investors there. And uh, another company, it's uh, Venus Aerospace, uh, which funded by my previous lead investor in my previous company, Momentus Prime Movers. They also build in hypersonic plane, also get money from US militaries. 
And uh, another Australian company, Hypersonics, which uh, worked with the Kratos and also got recently the big contract from U.S. Department of Defense. Yeah, mm-hmm. we see that uh, uh, many hypersonic applications now have also defense implications. And for sure, before we will be able to build a passenger plane with uh, which will be capable safely move people, we also will be going to the unmanned hypersonic domain. Yeah, unmanned hypersonic domain. And uh, the only market for this unmanned vehicles is military. There are no other markets. So mm-hmm. it means our first product, 100% will be for militaries. Mm-hmm. And only then for the passengers. I think your your project has been evolving a little bit as well, because I remember the first time I heard about it, the main idea was to do logistics, I think, to carry express cargos as a sort of courier service between continents. And you even mentioned uh, some very high speeds like Mach 15 or something like that. And, and that concept has been evolving over time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So first, when we worked and looked in more, uh, let's say, closer look on a potential speed, we decided at some stage, basically after a few months of company development, that uh, we want to build uh, air breathing engine uh, with a turbine-based combined cycle, which is a combination of the turbojet engine, existing engine, plus uh, ramjet which uh, both been built and tested many, many times, turbojet engines like it's uh, built for many jet fighters, and the uh, ramjet uh, is used on many rockets, and we're going to use this for the hydrogen. And it basically increased the speed how we can be in the market, yeah, because we can immediately jump and build something with a 1050 Mach with a rocket engine or to build something that can be on the market much uh, faster and uh, earlier. And uh, this is like TBCC or turbine-based combined cycle. So we decided to focus on a 5.6 max speed because uh, it will be basically several years faster. Yeah, several mm-hmm. years faster uh, than uh, going with a with a rocket engine or with a, anything like this. And uh, uh, regarding like uh, uh, the final use, I think it's a this is a really minor part because it's not influence any part of our development. The only difference is it's on a slides yet because we are not building passenger or cargo plane and we will not be building this for 10 years because it's so far in the future. It's a, it's like a way of building our technologies that initially will be used by military. Mm-hmm. In 10 years, we'll start to build something like for the passengers. So it means the only changes between the cargo or passengers, uh, this stuff, it's only you know, slides. So it's not influenced on our, any technological development. And uh, we decided to let's say, in the slides, position ourselves for passengers because it's a larger market. And because we understood after interaction with the regulator that from a regulatory standpoint, it will be no difference. Fly mm-hmm. with a cargo with passengers because you are flying over the people. doesn't matter. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't matter. And then the cargo market, the planes for cargo market, it's 100 times less than passengers because actually in the civil market, nobody building specialized cargo planes. Neither Airbus, nor Boeing. So I would say this was a stupid idea to think about that we will be able to build a cargo plane because its market do not exist. It's tiny market. Mm-hmm. Uh, people use like uh, passenger planes to move cargo mostly. Mm-hmm. And what has happened in, in recent times that startups like you or like you mentioned Hermeus, for example, in the US, I, I had the chance to speak with 
one of the founders, um, Skyler, a few weeks ago for an article I did for Aerotime about this topic. It seems that more or less at the same time, all these projects have emerged as, as startups. And this is a domain, as you, as you mentioned that until now or still today, it, it's pretty much something that, uh, the, the large nation states do for their military, etc. What has happened that has given a chance to, to startup companies to also experiment in this market? Is it because the technological barriers have become smaller? Or is it because there's some new knowledge that has become available? So it's uh, several reasons. First, as far as we know, no one technological nation working on a passenger hypersonic plane by assassination. Uh, it was some studies, you know, so European, uh, it was several European projects. Uh, Europe, by the way, it's one of the only countries, one of the few countries which doing stuff publicly. Yeah. If you look on a US uh, studies or Chinese, they become uh, classified many years ago, and there are nothing published. In Europe, the studies like Hexafly, Lepcat, uh, uh, the, it was like a, for, for almost a couple, couple dozen years, and all the studies is public. So it's actually, everything was published, and, and we can use it, you know, anybody can use it, basically. There are no, no, no much difference, like uh, some results of the studies. Uh, uh, but, but I would say, in general, the countries as we know, not developing the passenger planes, yeah, because this is a company what is doing, you know, Boeing, Airbus. So countries are very seldom to do it by, by, uh, by itself. So what country is developing us? What we know, uh, the hypersonic weapon, which have very big difference with the hypersonic plane. It's, it's except for the world hypersonic, the nothing, nothing, nothing the same. Because like a hypersonic weapon, a single time, a gliding warhead that basically can maneuver in a, a last approach to the target. So the systems like Patriot or S-500 cannot intercept it. That's all, yeah? And the plane, it's a different thing. Plane, it's like a, it's a flying vehicle which has propulsion, can take off, can fly, can land. So except for the word hypersonic, there are nothing common about it. So people think, okay, this hypersonic something, again, it's a different thing. It's unrelated. The meteorites that enter the OS atmosphere also hypersonic. Uh, so we're not telling that this hypersonic stuff that, um, what happened? I think several areas. So first, in general, now it starts to be possible to raise big enough funds and money to start this type of the projects because look at the early stage funding for these companies. They've been all considerable. Yeah. It's not like I'll create an application. It's dozens of millions. So we, for our seed round, we raised like 27 million. Then we raised a couple dozens even before the bigger round that we have hopefully will be closing in some near future. And the same for Hermes, same for, for Venus. Then technological disruption in the manufacturing also occurred last 10 years. So now you can build very complex uh, uh, structure from uh, heat resistant materials like steels with uh, uh, regenerative cooling, for example, which we are using uh, hydrogen for regenerative cooling. Uh, the digital modeling powerful enough so you don't need to use prohibitively expensive wind tunnels because if you need to use wind tunnels, it will be millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, it's, it's extremely expensive. So now you can do a lot in a digital form. Yeah, which was not the story. If you are in a San Francisco Bay Area, you, you may see these big hangars in a Moffett Field airbase. It's called NASA Ames Research Center. And this is the largest in the U.S. aerodynamic tubes where SR-71 was tested in a full scale. And, uh, this, uh, wind tunnel was, uh, uh operational during the night. So it can consume these hundreds of megawatts of power from the entire Bay Area. 
to to make it. So it's only government was able to pay such a big bills. You know, for private companies, it would be impossible. Uh, and I think the another angle is you see that all companies in U.S. or Australia, which is a kind of part of U.S. almost uh, now from a military standpoint, they all funded by military. And uh, and here is like very simple explanation for this. Uh, so uh, the main adversarial adversary countries for uh, for for U.S. or for Western countries, it's Russia and China, they're extremely advanced in the hypersonic weapon. And uh, against hypersonic weapon, there are no good uh, protection because the speed of the warhead and the ability to maneuver it make it almost impossible to intercept it. So basically, the, the, the modern air defense system cannot intercept it. You can destroy air carrier or you destroy nuclear power plant with a with a hit, and then it's very difficult to intercept it. So one of the ways to intercept it is actually intercepted early enough, uh, so before it starts to maneuver on, on some like uh, early part of trajectory. And then for this, hypersonic plane uh, would be the good choice, or, or supersonic, hypersonic, so you can fly, and you can intercept it on a part of trajectory when it's still, still maneuvering. And uh, as, uh, as we think that this may be one of the reasons now that... Uh, uh, the U.S. military are ready to pay the big checks. Or in China, I think it's happened the same. They also funding some private startups uh, which develop hypersonic uh, unmanned drones as a defense layer, as initial defense layer. Yeah, this is a not yet story in Europe. Yeah, uh, we hope it will be the story in Europe, but it's not yet story in Europe. So this is probably another reason why now is so active development in this area because there are early customers. Yeah, early customers. And yep. uh, for all aeronautic technologies, without exception, for all aeronautic technologies, military was always early customer. And we shouldn't be here over modest saying that, hey, military is first customer. Yeah. So this technology, uh, from what I understand, I'm not an expert in propulsion technologies, but from what I read, it's composed of two elements. One is, a let's say, a conventional turbo engine, and the other one is a, a ramjet. That it's a part that gives the, this hypersonic speed. Is this correct? And can you tell us a bit more about what's special about this uh, ramjet technology that allows for these super high speeds? Ramjet, it's the simplest engine that is possible. Uh, frankly speaking, the first uh, power rockets that was built, it was used like an analog of the almost ramjet. And ramjet is widely used by uh, dozens of uh, rockets, dozens of missiles, different missiles that produce in every country in the world. So, there are nothing more simple in a good sense than ramjet. Ramjet is a very simple engine. It's a basically just tube uh, which uh, compresses the air. Uh, when air air enters this combustion chamber, it's subsonic, it's combust, and then created thrust. So there are no magic, no tricks, no secrets. It's all known. It's kind of, you know, it's simple than turbojet engine. There are some difficulties to combine them together because you need to switch from one mode to another. Yeah, You need to switch the flow. And again, here's like a a lot new, but I would say in theory everything is known because people was building supersonic planes for a long time, and almost all good supersonic planes have variable geometry in days. So it, it means it's uh, not some magical secret that behind this. Yeah, and uh, and this is a good uh, about this TBCC combination of the turbojet engine and the ramjet that are basically nothing. But is this ramjet you're building it or you are? Getting it from some supplier. Where, where do you get a ramjet? The ramjet you can build at home. How? <laughs> it's tube. It's just tube. Okay. It's just tube. There are no rotating devices. It's the simplest thing that you can build. I mean, 
you can build Ramjet and basically be enthusiast at, at home. Uh-huh. And this is so, not exaggeration. So you're building your own. You're building your your own Ramjet. For sure, for sure. There are no there are no mm-hmm. like uh, on the market Ramjet because you build it up to the like uh, your size and scale. We we're gonna use initially existing turbojet engines because we mm-hmm. uh, we have like some turbojet engines that we can use. Not turbofan, turbojet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not engine from uh, Airbus or Boeing. It's engines from uh, uh, jet fighters. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but Ramjet uh, we are, we are building because there are no market on the market Ramjet because. The planes didn't use ramjets for a long time. It, in the 60s, they used it. But then it was like nobody used like a, in a plane ramjet. And ramjet is a primitive, in a good sense. The ramjet by itself is a primitive, it's a pretty simple engine. There are no problems in ramjet. The problems in the takes and nozzle, you know, mm-hmm. the combination, but not in the ramjet itself. Okay. And we've been talking a lot about the speed, which is obviously the main distinctive feature of this project. But what about the other performance indicators let's say things like range and also considering you are uh, you have the passenger market in your mind how is the passenger experience going to be like how many passengers are you planning to bring on board how is going to be different from a normal jet for example i i'm assuming from what i've seen in the renderings there are not going to be windows for example in in the in the plane what can you tell us about this aspect of of the project until the stage that we are using existing engines, because basically existing engines are jet engines from jet 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 fighters, uh, we can only with existing engines build a reasonably small plane, which can carry twenty twenty five people, seven eight thousand kilometers. So basically trans Atlantic, yeah. And this is a limitation of existing engines. So basically with existing engines, with a few engines, four engines, we can build a plane which can carry from Paris to New York in one hour and a half, twenty twenty five people, basically first class. Yeah, uh, because nobody building the big uh, turbojet engines uh, because turbojet engines are built for jet fighters. So um, then uh, the another question: What can be the theoretically the biggest plane which we can build if we build our own engine yeah, or with partnership? Then the, basically the main limitation in this case will be the existing airport infrastructure because the plane is pretty large, different geometry, it's have hydrogen which is light liquid, and uh, based on this we also did a calculation of uh, we can build up to 400 people probably yeah and then beyond this would be impossible using existing airport infrastructure yeah so something with the size of the airbus 380 this is probably the largest which you can build what will be the final uh, design it will be 100 people 200 people 300 people we don't know yet because we we're not gonna start designing this for many years from now because uh we we will be starting design a personic drone in a few years, and then we will mm-hmm. be starting design potentially the first small plane in a few years. Yeah, uh, so it means like a, what will be our Airbus 380? We don't need to think about this like for for a long time, but mm-hmm. it can be a few hundred people. Yeah, well, that would be impressive enough. Have you thought already how the the passenger experience would be like? How the cabin would be like? It's kind of last thing that we are thinking about now. You know. Uh, we can we can spend for this time, but it's uh, it will be just crystal ball gazing. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably will, will be no windows, so the people will be sitting. But you know, what what do you mean? Like what type of the chairs? What type of the color? I think it's a uh, <laughs> it's it would be strange if we start to think about this. Understood. Mm-hmm. Well, where are you now with the project? Which milestones have you reached, and what are the most immediate milestones that we can expect in the near future? I have seen that you tested two 
small scale prototypes in 2021 and 2022. I think the last one was in October last year. And I think you were planning also a test in the coming months, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like uh, we are uh, flying with the subsonic prototypes basically to test uh, low speed aerodynamics. Uh, we have two models uh, which we use for this. We are building now also the supersonic prototype, uh, which we will present in La Bourget Air Show. This will be the hydrogen supersonic prototype, but we will probably will start to fly it next year. Mm -hmm. uh, supersonic one, and uh, and uh, we will test the conversion of turbojet engines to hydrogen, hydrogen afterburner. So like uh, many many pieces of uh, of the final uh, system, like uh, hydrogen tanks, hydrogen pumps, hydrogen turbojet engines, afterburner. This is will be tested in the next supersonic plane. When you say supersonic, what what mass? One point two, one point three. Okay. You mentioned also hydrogen. Uh, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Now there's a lot of concern about sustainability. Everything that promises to fly faster is immediately under scrutiny about what sort of impact this is going to have on the environment. In your case, you have been opting for hydrogen. I imagine it's uh, liquid hydrogen. What can you tell us about the, the state of, of this research onto the, fueling, <coughs> onto the fueling part of the project? And... Where is this hydrogen going to come from? How is it going to be stored? How are you going to be fitting all this inside the aircraft? I guess in interior tanks to store all this liquid hydrogen under very low temperatures. So, yeah, for sure. It's only option to use liquid hydrogen. There are no option to use gaseous hydrogen because gaseous hydrogen have extremely low efficiency of the storage. For every 100 kilogram of tank, you can store only 5 kilograms of gaseous hydrogen, <laughs> which is like a beyond any... Uh, optimal stuff for the for the liquid hydrogen for 10 kilogram tank finally you can store 100 kilogram of liquid hydrogen yeah so like gaseous it doesn't work stupid stupid idea uh for the for the planes even for the cars i think stupid idea not only for the planes um, uh, so people know how to deal with the liquid hydrogen so in europe it was two schools uh, of using liquid hydrogen primarily for rocketry i'm not talking about the small lab applications i'm talking about the big one so it was one in uh, around uh, the Ariane space you know with early kit Ariane, and then school around this and second was uh, in the soviet union because also soviet union built uh energia rocket in the upper stages with the hydrogen and uh, they import they exported a lot of technologies outside like india used a lot of soviet technologies with the hydrogen so it means uh, uh, there are some engineering schools how to deal with liquid hydrogen and um, now liquid hydrogen is a fuel of the choice for many mobility applications, future mobility applications. Not only uh, planes, it's potentially for the long-range trucks, for the buses, for trains, uh, for ships. And uh, yes, uh, we're going to uh, build a tank which will be somehow integrated inside the structure. And uh, we're actually building the first tank for the first uh, plane that will start to fly next year. And uh, this will be liquid hydrogen tank. And uh, it will be the first uh, plane with a liquid hydrogen, which should cross the speed. The first plane in the history of aviation. Wow. So first plane. In-house. I mean, we're not uh, uh, collecting ore, uh, ore from the ground and uh, building the metal. It's stupid. Yeah. I mean, like uh, we make a design and somebody build for us for, for scale. Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah. But it means we're building. Uh, because if like an uh, Airbnb or Boeing, nothing. 
uh, Rolls-Royce, it's like design engines and then multiple suppliers yeah, uh, uh, build mm-hmm. for them in Telus. It doesn't mean that Rolls-Royce is not building, you know, so mm-hmm. we, we don't need to be like in the Northern Korea and try to build everything else. So when people come to us and say, okay, where do you have like all these machineries, builds? And I said, I would be the stupid entrepreneur if I uh, would buy the machinery which costs like millions of dollars to do one detail which I can order for uh, dozens of thousands, yeah? Yeah, indeed. So can we say that your aircraft is going to be a green aircraft because it's going to be using hydrogen? So it will use hydrogen, so it will not emit uh, uh, carbon dioxide, yeah, because it's hydrogen, but it will not be green. Like uh, any plane engines will not be green. So you have nitrogen oxide emission because it's combustion. You'll have water emission on high altitude, which is uh, worse than carbon dioxide. can be worse than carbon dioxide. You have noise pollution. You have everything. So I think we as a humanity should be also open. that We have some limits for the green, but it should be okay to pay some penalty for the convenience. If you're not ready to pay the penalty, don't fly with the planes. Don't use the cars. Just, you know, live in the forest. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, there's always some impact. Yeah, we're using um, not because of the building being green. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using hydrogen because it's a fuel of choice because it's a good coolant. All the projects that use hydrogen, but basically then sacrifice the performance of the plane, like all this stupid zero green avia or this one. It's a, it's a, it's 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 like a, uh, it's a bad approach because you cannot build a business only to be the green. We use the hydrogen not because it's green, because it's a good fuel for the hypersonic speed. The green, okay, uh, but I tell you, the planes are not green in general. Carbon, uh, uh, even though they're not emitting uh, CO2, they emit like nitrogen oxide. Everything. This is what we will have, like, uh, and uh, and uh, so I don't want to say as a way a green project because aviation is not green in general with any fuel. I think in Spain, you recently got some funding from the organization that promotes technological development in, in Spain. From what I read, you might actually be building some capacities there, industrial facilities. What can you tell us about this? So we, we got like a two R&D grants. Uh, we participated in, in a concourse and a tender and got two R&D grants, uh, in a part of the, as a part of consortium in one, uh, to build a test test centers in the Torajon airport with the ITP Aero and INTA, which is a Spanish military uh, military institute responsible for aeronautics. And uh, I think we just had a good proposal to uh, to test it, uh, to, to build this facility. And uh, we're going to use it to test our uh, hydrogen and non-hydrogen engines. And the uh, ITP Aero will be testing their own uh, staff and uh, Spanish military defense, probably their own projects. So, and then we, it's a co-financing, so it's like a uh, partially funded by these European grants, partially funded by us. So it's a co-financing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second the second grant we got uh, also to, it's, it's also co-financing to build a hydrogen tank, to build uh, additional infrastructure, to build a pump, uh, and to convert engine to hydrogen. So we we got this like a for, uh, for another, it's still R&D. It's not cover any facility. It's not cover any production because we are in many years far from any production of the passenger planes, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, on the passenger planes. And uh, where we're going to build the test facility to build uh, our military projects before, it will depend where we will get our customers funding, yeah? Who will be who will be our customers for this? Yeah. Uh, right now, you mentioned earlier that you have raised uh, a few tens of millions of euros for, for this project. Do you have any order already or that's too early to tell? 
Uh, we, let's put this way. Uh, we don't have any orders for our hypersonic stuff. Mm -hmm. Just because we are not yet in a stage to basically even accept any orders because we are still in the R&D stage. Uh, we have some projects in a, in a slower speed, but it's all classified. Okay, understood. And what are the time milestones that we can expect from now on? Are there specific dates that we should mark in the calendar to look for tests or achievements in this long process towards the hypersonic flight? Uh, we're going to test next year, as I told you, our supersonic prototype, but it will be not one specific date. It will be many dozens of flights with a different, like a flight profile with different objectives, like uh, initially only with the turbojet engines, then with the turbojet with the afterburner, subsonic and then supersonic. So it will be the whole uh, flight program, which probably will last for many quarters. If everything goes according to plan... Is there a long time horizon where you think it's going to be feasible to fly commercially hypersonic between continents? Difficult to say. It can take 10 years. Uh, if everything will be good uh, with a small one, it can take 15 years. It can take 20 years. Uh, look at SpaceX. Do you know how old is SpaceX? I, I will need to check. I, I don't know now top of my mind. 22 years. Okay. I would have said something between 10 and 15, but yeah, much, much longer 22 actually. Years. 22 years, yeah. So they're about just now to build, uh, finally, that something different, um, Starship. Before this was, so that basically was kind of built by, you know, Americans, Europeans, Soviets a long time ago, like Falcon 9, good rocket, but nothing extra revolutionary except the landing one. But, so it can take a lot, a lot of time. Yeah. It can take a lot of time. And it's normal. And it's like, a, it's, it's normal for this, uh, for this business that to ultimate goal, it can take a lot of time. We don't know what obstacles will be, but, uh, we know that now it's possible. And it can be probably possible pretty fast, like 10, 15 years, which is a very fast. Actually, I was thinking if you guys are successful, even if it's a 20 year time horizon, which in aviation is not so long, a conventional aircraft program can take 10 years easily. Yeah. You would completely transform the way that people travel long distances. Because we are talking with hypersonic flight. You could, for example, travel between Europe and, and Asia or Australia in, in a matter of four hours three hours, something like that, crossing the Atlantic in a couple of hours. So I can not even imagine the sort of social and economic impact this could have in the way that people uh, move around the world. I don't know if that's something that you guys have somehow quantified in, in your studies, in your evaluations. Yeah. I mean, we definitely did some like uh, estimations and studies, but Again, it's uh, more to get the potential market, but we see that this is a, can be the very big part of the market because people now don't fly for a long distance because it takes time long. Have you personally been in New Zealand? No, never, unfortunately, because I, I would really, really like to go there, but uh, it's, it's yeah, so yeah. far have away. You, have you been in French Polynesia? No, I haven't, no. <laughs> have, have you been in uh, Terra del Fuego? Where? Terra del Fuego, yeah? The, the... No, I, have, I haven't, no. So, All those places are in my list, but haven't been, unfortunately. So, but, 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 but have you been in Mallorca? I have. Okay, the Canary Islands. I have. Long time ago, though, but <laughs> I would like to go but back. Still, but still reasonable, <laughs> because it's close, yeah? Yeah. It's, it's reasonably close, yeah. So this is, the, this is the, what we see. The, for the people still to fly intercontinental, it's much harder. You can fly within Europe many times a week. You can, uh, if you live in Madrid, you can go to Paris. If you live in Geneva, you can go to Munich on the same day, come back or the next day. But to do the same, even with US, which is pretty close, it's much harder. To do this with uh, Asia or like 
Australia or New Zealand, it's impossible. You need like a week, or two weeks. In our modern age, it's too much time. Yes, indeed. And would these hypersonic aircraft have to go through a specific certification process? Is, is there even a framework that the regulator has in place for this type of uh, situations? There are no framework. Okay. So it would need to be an ad hoc process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole thing is, it's, it's pretty challenging, but, but so, so fascinating because, I mean, as I mentioned just one second ago, it has the potential to completely transform the way we understand air travel. Because here on this podcast, we, we cover innovation in a broad sense. So we are often looking at, at people doing uh, new things, doing things in different novel ways. But this hypersonics is really, really cutting edge. And I really appreciate you making time today to share some details about, about this. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I hope you had an enjoy of the very direct way how it's talking. You know, this is a not common for the culture because usually people say it in this soft, you know, the, you know, lavish way, say, yeah, we're green, we are doing this. No, we like, we need to be very clear, understand what we are doing. Where is money? First money in military. If Europe will not give military money for this, forget about this. You will buy Europeans, you will buy from Chinese or Americans. Number one. No green uh, aviation. It's, 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 it's bullshit. The aviation will not, never, never be green. It will be somehow green, but partially green. Yeah. Also should understand this directly. Otherwise, it's like self-deception. Uh, to do hydrogen just for subsonic flight, just to be green, is a stupid idea. So all companies will become bankrupt. It's a stupid idea. It will never be, because you cannot build a business just to be green. It needs to be efficient. Yeah. Understood. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And all the best with the project. Thank you. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're using or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much and see you soon. Yeah.